When Logan Tucker disappeared, his mother had two stories about where he was. One she gave to family and the other to law enforcement. One thing was clear, neither story was true. But building a case would take years. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Today is a kid case. So the usual disclaimer here, if you don't do kid cases, I'll see you back here next week when we don't have a kid case. Or you can check out my YouTube channel where I have some recent videos that are also not kid cases. I do want to thank Hillary for suggesting this case to me. The name Crime Lines is a play on true crime and timelines and basically describes how I walk us through a case chronologically. And this episode is going to take that timeline structure very literally. There is no other way to present this case, but by taking it one year, one month, and in some cases, one day at a time. It's also going to be a long one, so no housekeeping. Let's just jump into it. And we are going to start with Logan's background. And to do that, we have to back up to the life of his mother, Catherine Katie Rutan. Katie was born in February of 1975 in Indiana. She didn't stay with her birth family for very long before she entered the foster care system. After living with two foster families, she was adopted at the age of five by Ron and Carolyn Cathcart. So in the first five years of life, Katie moved multiple homes, and not only that, she and her brother Brian were separated in all of this. Brian was adopted by another family. The research on this and the common sense is pretty clear. Children need a predictable and consistent caring adult they can attach to. Placement, instability, and foster care has shown an increase in behavioral and mental health issues in children, as well as other issues. These can even persist after the child finds a loving and permanent placement. We cannot erase trauma. We learn to cope with it. I'm not going to armchair diagnose anything or attribute specific behaviors of Katie's to this situation as we move forward in this story. But it just is something I want you to keep in the back of your mind as a piece of added context. So after her adoption, Katie grew up in Kansas with her adopted brother, Mickey. They enjoyed running around outside, taking family vacations to Colorado and Florida, and going to church every Sunday. At 18, Katie married a man named Christopher, but they divorced less than two years later in 1995. Almost right away, Katie married Robert Tucker. The two had a son together, Logan, in April 1996 when Katie was 21. When Logan was an infant, they divorced. In 1997, Katie reconnected with her birth mother, Connie. She decided to move to Oklahoma to live with her. According to Katie, a few months after that, she and Logan were kicked out of the house. Katie married again that year, and her new husband was a man named Joe. In 1998, Katie and Joe had a child together, referred to in court documents as JD, and to protect his privacy, that is what we are going to call him here. It's not clear when Joe and Katie split up, but this marriage was about as short as the previous ones, under two years long. In 1999, Katie and her two boys, Logan and JD, were living in Kansas City with Katie's new boyfriend, Paul. According to Paul, Katie would talk about wanting to enjoy her life, but not being able to because she had two young children to care for. Paul and Katie split up after an incident where Paul came home from work and found Logan, who was about three years old at the time, with several deep bruises on the back of his legs. When he asked Katie what happened, she accused him, Paul, of having abused Logan. Paul had witnessed Katie hit Logan before, but nothing like this, and then accusing him of being the person who inflicted those bruises was just a step too far, and the two split up. 
Around this time, Katie called Connie, her birth mother, and told her she was afraid she was going to hurt the boys. She would get so overwhelmed and frustrated with them. So Connie got into her car and drove the four hours from Tulsa to Kansas City to pick the boys up. After they lived with Connie for around two or three months, Katie showed up and took the boys back. Then at some point, Katie and the boys moved in with Connie, where they stayed for several months, and Katie would come and go as she pleased. She didn't seem to think the boys were ultimately her responsibility while she was living with Connie. Then one day, Katie showed up at the house with a new husband named Brady. She married him in 1999. They took the boys and moved into their own place. Like the previous marriages, this one ended quickly and they were divorced in 2001. While Katie and Brady were separated, Katie moved in with a man named Richard. They met because their kids went to daycare together. Richard wasn't necessarily ready for Katie to move in with her boys, but she told him she was being evicted and they didn't have anywhere else to go. With Katie in his home, Richard saw what he thought were some concerning aspects about how Katie parented her boys, particularly Logan. And this is something other people noticed as well throughout the years. Katie struggled to parent Logan in ways she didn't struggle with when it came to JD. She seemed more affectionate with the younger son and much less affectionate with Logan. Logan also got the more extreme discipline, like being hit with objects like coat hangers. Katie told neighbors once that Logan was the reason her relationships all failed. She felt that having him was a mistake, and they didn't report her saying quite the same things about JD, or at least not quite so harshly. One story Richard told was that they all went for a drive one day. It was Richard, his daughter, Katie, Logan, and JD. Katie and Logan were yelling at each other for a large chunk of the time, and Logan eventually yelled, I hate you, to Katie. Katie told Richard to stop the vehicle. She pulled Logan out of the truck and then got back in herself without him and told Richard to drive off. She wanted them to leave Logan on the side of the road. He was about five years old at this point, which would make Katie 26 years old, a full-grown adult having a screaming match with a child. Richard pulled forward a few feet before stopping. He got out and put Logan back in the truck. I wonder if he thought this was some kind of scare tactic to get Logan to behave, and he thought Katie was going to tell him to stop the truck eventually but she hadn't, so he stopped it himself. The end of this relationship came one night when they were lying in bed, and Katie said she wished she could kill her children and get away with it. Richard couldn't believe what he heard and had her repeat it. She did, but then she said she was just kidding. But this spooked him because Katie had said things before about how her kids were holding her back in life. She had a job offer from a relative out of state that she couldn't take, and she said it was because she couldn't take the boys with her and had nowhere to leave them, even though she wanted the job. So Richard wasn't sure she was kidding. He left the bed and slept in his daughter's room that night, and by the end of the week, he had Katie and her boys out of his home. There are instances of people seeing and hearing what really sounds like just bad parenting, but there are some who did witness actual abuse. No one called the authorities, however, until April 27th, 2002, when a call was placed by none other than Katie herself. She was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time with the boys and called a crisis hotline saying she didn't know what she would do to her kids. The police responded to the call and documented Katie as saying she was afraid she was going to hurt her children and that Logan specifically made her so angry that she wanted to hit him as hard as she could. With this, the children were taken into protective custody and a social worker with the Department of Human Services interviewed Katie that same day. Katie admitted she was overwhelmed with Logan, who was six years old. She said she wanted her adoptive parents to take custody of both of the boys. They were contacted, but they were not in a position 
to take sudden custody of a six-year-old and a four-year-old at that time. Five days after the kids were put into foster care, there was a hearing in court, at which time Katie had apparently changed her mind and she wanted them back. They were returned to her. At this time, Katie had been talking to a man online named Michael for a few weeks, maybe even several weeks. And Katie emailed him saying that Logan wasn't coming home, but JD was. Why she said this, we don't know, because it wasn't true, and Katie knew it wasn't true at the time she sent the email. In mid-May, which would have been about a week or so after Logan and JD were sent home, Katie and Michael were discussing her moving closer to where he lived in Fort Supply, Oklahoma. They had hit it off online, but lived three and a half hours apart. Fort Supply is one of the last towns before you hit the actual Oklahoma panhandle. Katie moving closer to Michael seemed like the right step in their relationship, except Michael thought actually living together was too big of a step. Katie, however, was pushing to move in since she was, according to her, having to give up her job in Tulsa and uproot her kids in order to be closer to Michael. On May 23rd, Katie told Michael that she was fired from her job and she was moving to Fort Supply immediately. She didn't have anywhere to live, so she and the boys moved in with Michael. Michael was not a fan of this. It sounds like he was steamrolled, to be honest. Within two weeks, Michael found somewhere for Katie and the boys to live that was not his home. He had a coworker named Melody who was looking for a roommate to help make ends meet. So Katie, Logan, and JD moved in with Melody in Woodward, Oklahoma, which is just 20 minutes from Fort Supply, and Katie and Michael continued their dating relationship. Katie did not have a job yet, so Michael was paying Katie's share of the bills at Melody's house. That should give you an idea of how much he didn't want her to live with him. He paid for her to live elsewhere. The three moved into Melody's on June 10th, 2002, and Melody was pretty alarmed early on by how Katie spoke about Logan. He seemed like an energetic little boy, but Katie said he tried to burn down their house in Tulsa, and in front of Logan, she would just talk about his supposedly extreme behavior and just really talk negatively about him in general, right there in front of him. About a week after they moved in, Melody caught Logan and JD playing with a lighter and some cigarettes they had found. With Katie's story about Logan purposely trying to start a fire before, she panicked. Either Melody or Katie called the police out to the house. The responding officers called a mental health worker to the home after Katie said Logan wasn't just playing with this lighter. He was actually trying to burn the house down. She asked them to arrest him. Logan, a six-year-old boy. Her six-year-old boy, she wanted him arrested. The police were like, yeah, no, we don't do that. And they tried instead to get the ball rolling to bring in family services for them. They put Katie in touch with three agencies, a local domestic crisis center, the Department of Human Services, and the local mental health facility. So Katie ended up talking to three representatives from all of those agencies and had various interesting things to say. Not necessarily true things, but interesting. She told the coordinator from the Domestic Crisis Center that Logan hid lighters on the regular and one time he stabbed his younger brother, something that has not been documented elsewhere. She said Logan was basically getting them kicked out of their house because Melody wasn't comfortable having them live there anymore, which that part was true. And Michael basically told Katie she had to move out of Melody's house, and he was not going to help her find somewhere else to live. He was also worried Logan was trying to burn down houses. Whether Logan was trying to start fires or he was just playing with lighters that were left in his reach, we don't know. Katie is not a reliable narrator. 
We don't see Logan's terrible behavior really being documented anywhere, but we do see Katie's overreaction to his behavior being documented by Jimmy Fraley, the person the police called in from the mental health center. She watched Logan play and noted he was a typical child. He was friendly and polite. She didn't see any extreme behavior from him, but she saw Katie be strict with him and lose her patience quickly with what Jimmy perceived as routine six-year-old behavior. Not even negative behavior, just acting like a six-year-old. But Katie insisted Logan needed inpatient psychiatric care. She explained that Logan had experienced trauma when his twin sister died during birth, and she felt that this had affected his behavior and his mental health even six years down the road. There actually has been some research into psychiatric disorders in surviving twins in situations like Katie explained. It's a rather small population in the world who fit into this demographic, which also gives us a small sample size, so more research would need to be done to see how lasting the effects are. But Logan, no matter what, he wouldn't be included in this because there was no twin. There is no record of a twin, and Logan's father attended the birth and said only one baby was born. He definitely would have remembered if there were two. Like I said, Katie is an unreliable narrator. So with Katie insisting on inpatient care for Logan, Jimmy called a psychiatric hospital for children in Oklahoma, and they said they would have a bed available on Monday, June 24th, which was just four days later. On hearing this, Jimmy went ahead and booked the intake appointment for Monday morning. When she told Katie that it was going to be four days before they would have a space for Logan and she would have to have her son all weekend, Katie got very upset. She wanted him out of the house immediately. She said he was just too dangerous. But there were limited options at this point. Logan didn't have a family member to stay with in the meantime, and the mental health coordinator could not remove him from the home and put him into foster care. That wasn't in her purview. After hearing they couldn't do anything except wait those four days until Logan was admitted into the hospital, Katie yelled, You never listen to me. He's a child murderer and a house burner, and you won't do anything. She literally called him a child murderer. So the third person Katie talked to about all of this was a social worker with DHS who did have the power to place Logan in foster care. Katie basically said she didn't care where he went, shelter, hospital, foster home, just as long as he was out of her custody and out of Melody's house. Katie said it was because Logan was in immediate danger, but friends said... Katie was actually upset that she couldn't travel to a motorcycle rally with Michael for the weekend. That's why she was so eager for them to take Logan immediately. She had no one who would babysit for him for the weekend. And honestly, could you blame them? Katie had just moved to the area, so they hardly knew her. They hardly knew Logan. All they knew was what Katie said about him, and she spent her spare time telling people he was a fire-starting, child-stabbing terror. No wonder no one would babysit. So the social worker with DHS took the case to the DA to see if Logan could or should be removed immediately. Though Katie insisted Logan was a danger, there was really no evidence of that, and she made no indication that Logan was in danger if he stayed. Like she did that time in Tulsa when the boys were removed, she said she was afraid she'd hurt them. She didn't give that indication this time. With having a placement in a hospital starting on Monday, Logan was left in the home for the weekend. On Saturday night, rather late, Katie was up on the computer after Melody and the boys had gone to bed. At around 3 a.m., which would have technically been Sunday, June 23rd, 2002, Melody was startled awake by a scream and crying, and she knew it was from Logan. Logan had been prone to night terrors, which are pretty common at that age. Melody got out of bed a little bit after waking and found Katie still in the living room sitting at the computer. 
She asked if Logan was okay, and Katie said he was sick, so she put him in the back bedroom to sleep. Melody said okay and went back to bed herself. At 6 a.m., Melody got up to get ready for work, and her work clothes were kept in that back bedroom. She made a comment to Katie, who was still on the computer, that she didn't want to bother Logan if he was sleeping. Katie told her not to worry about it because she had actually moved Logan out of the bedroom and down to the basement. This surprised Melody since we aren't talking about a finished basement. This was a cement cellar with utilities like a hot water heater. There were two pieces of furniture down there. One was an old cabinet and the other was a twin mattress that was on top of a box spring. But they were old and soiled and not really suited for sleeping on. They were just really being stored down there. Melody wasn't pleased at hearing that Logan was put in the basement to sleep, particularly if he was sick, but she got herself ready for work and left around 7 a.m. Around noon that day, Melody's daughter Lacey came by. Katie was sitting at the computer playing a card game, and Lacey asked where the kids were. Katie said DHS had come by and picked up Logan. She didn't seem upset about it, but then again, that's what she wanted to happen. Lacey asked if both boys were taken since she assumed DHS would remove all the children, not just one, but Katie said they just took Logan. Not long after this visit from Lacey, Katie went over to a friend's house. This is a friend named Dee, and she told the people there that Logan had been taken by DHS and would not be coming home. To cope with this loss, Katie was going to treat the situation like she did when Logan's twin died. Though she noted Logan definitely was not dead, Katie said she was going to pretend he was so she could find a way to move on. So this is the second known mention of this non-existent twin sister. Katie left Dee's house and went back to Melody's, and Melody's other daughter, Christy, came by, and Katie told her the DHS story, but this time Katie cried. But her words didn't match this upset reaction. Katie said it was a relief and a weight lifted now that Logan was gone. She offered Christy some of Logan's clothes, which is something she also did with a neighbor that day. She said DHS wouldn't let Logan take them with him, and she was relinquishing her rights, so he would definitely not be coming home. Christy asked Katie what she thought was going to happen to Logan. Was he going to family members? Was he going to end up in a group home or a hospital? And Katie said she assumed his father would take him, the same father who hadn't seen him in six years. This was a Sunday, so there was a lot of visiting with friends and family throughout the day, and Katie told the DHS story to all of them. People were disturbed that she didn't seem to care where Logan ended up or that he was out of her custody or that she was never going to see him again. It was her boyfriend Michael's mother, Evelyn, though, who picked up on a little detail. Katie had talked to DHS ahead of time and told them She wanted Logan out of her home, and she wanted to relinquish her rights. Evelyn thought it seemed odd that DHS would show up unannounced on a Sunday when this was a voluntary placement, not an emergency situation. Evelyn also noticed that day that there was this substance on Katie's shirt, which she asked about, and Katie said it was wax from having spilled a candle on herself. Seems like a random detail, but I'm going to have you hold on to that for a minute. The next day, on Monday, June 24th, the psychiatric hospital called Katie to let her know the bed was ready and to start the admission process. Katie told them that there had been a change of plans. Logan was going to live with her brother rather than go to the hospital. Later that day, Katie told Melody that she should do some plantings of wildflowers in her yard. Katie said she knew where to dig some up to transplant, and Melody said, sure, have at it. Katie then went to Michael's house to get a shovel to dig up the flowers and to get some scrap plastic she said was to make a flower bed or lining. Michael had been digging a pond on his property, so he had the spare plastic that he had used for that project. 
Michael wasn't home when Katie got there, but his mother, Evelyn, who lived very nearby, saw Katie get the shovel and plastic and put those items in her trunk. Katie may have seen Evelyn watching because she walked over to the house with J.D. and told her the flower digging story. Katie drove off, supposedly to go dig up wildflowers, but no wildflowers ever appeared, never were planted at Melody's house. The following day, on the 25th, Katie had some type of check-in with her social worker. This was not the same social worker who had visited them the week before. This social worker did not know about the plan to place Logan anywhere. This was more of a benefits coordinator. Katie had been getting subsidized childcare for the boys, but since she wasn't working, they terminated that service. Katie then asked about getting her food stamp allotment raised. Again, just benefits type talk. So Katie is on the phone with DHS. The people she claimed to others took Logan. And now she changed the story about where he was. She said that she was trying to get him into a facility for treatment, but at the moment he was staying with his grandparents. Later that day, Katie called Logan's actual grandparents and told them the DHS story. She said Logan was placed in a facility for troubled children, and even more than that, Logan could not have contact with anyone in the family. However, behind the scenes, DHS was learning that Logan wasn't in a facility because the psychiatric hospital called them to inform them that the appointment had been canceled. When the social worker who met with Katie the week before reached out to find out why Katie did not show up for that appointment, Katie said Logan was camping in Vermont with her brother and then she was going to instead place him at a school in Tulsa. This was a school that is designed for children with psychiatric issues. This was a long-term placement rather than the short-term treatment of a psychiatric hospital. I'm sure you're all surprised to hear that Katie never applied to that school or made any documented contact with them. Logan, at this point, had not been seen or heard from since Melody heard a scream at 3 a.m. two days before. According to Katie, Logan was in DHS custody or a facility or a psychiatric hospital or was placed with his father or he was with his grandparents or he was living with his uncle or he was just camping with his uncle before he entered a residential care school. In two days, Katie told all of those stories. Fast forward a few days, and that weekend, Katie went to a motorcycle rally with Michael. While there, Katie's story was that Logan was with his father. She was asked if she thought that was a good place for him, where he'd do well, and Katie said she had no idea. She hadn't seen Logan's father in years. Like everyone else, these people were slightly horrified at how little Katie seemed to care about what was going on with Logan. On Friday the 28th, with Katie at this motorcycle rally, Katie's adoptive parents had decided that they were going to take custody of Logan. As far as they knew, Katie's rights were going to be terminated eventually, and they didn't want him bouncing around the system if they could provide a stable home for him. So they called the Department of Human Services to inquire about Logan and kinship placement. They were told Logan was not in their custody. They tried immediately to get in touch with Katie to figure out what was going on. They finally reached her after she got back from the motorcycle rally, and they talked to her on July 1st. When they spoke with her, her parents told her that they knew Logan wasn't with DHS yet and that they decided they would take custody of him. Katie told them that there was a hearing scheduled for the 4th to decide what to do with Logan's placement. July 4th is a federal holiday here, and so the courts would have been closed. When her parents mentioned that to Katie, she said, oh yeah, the hearing is actually on the 3rd. So on July 5th, they called Katie again to ask about the hearing and to get the process moving to take custody of Logan. Katie told them that it wasn't going to be anytime soon. Logan was in a hospital and his inpatient treatment plan would take a minimum of six months to complete, but it could possibly be up to two years. They asked where Logan was getting this treatment and Katie would not say. On July 5th, 6th, and 7th, Katie tried to get friends to call her parents and tell them 
that Logan was okay. No one would do that because they didn't know where Logan was. They didn't know if he was okay. And Katie wasn't being too forthcoming with where he was. On July 7th, tired of getting stonewalled about Logan's whereabouts, Katie's adoptive brother, Mickey, called the police and asked for a welfare check. Just by the way, I'm only using the terms birth and adoptive throughout this episode to be clear on who I'm talking about. We have two sets of parents and two brothers, so it's just easier if I use these markers. Generally speaking, qualifying relationships like this sits weird with me, so if it sits weird with you too, know it's just for the sake of clarity. So back to the story. Mickey called for this welfare check, and the local police went to Melody's house to check on Logan around 3.30 in the afternoon on the 7th. At this point, Logan hadn't been seen in around two weeks. Katie and Melody were both home at the time. Melody saw the officers pull up to the driveway and said something about the police being there. Katie, who was sitting in the living room, got up and told Melody to tell them she wasn't home, and she went back into her bedroom. When Melody opened the door to the officers, she did the opposite of what Katie asked. They asked to talk to Katie, and Melody called her out to the living room. The officers explained that they were there to do a welfare check on Logan and they would like to see him. Katie said he wasn't there, but he had gone camping with her birth brother, Brian. She knew he was back east somewhere, either Pennsylvania or Vermont. So good news, Logan was with his uncle. The police just needed Brian's phone number. They could call him and confirm, no problem, except Katie didn't have Brian's phone number. She sent her six-year-old on a camping trip 1,200-plus miles away with absolutely no way of contacting him. She wasn't even sure what state he was in, and she hadn't spoken to him since they had left two weeks before. Then Katie mentioned that Brian had a traveling sales job, so he could have been bouncing from motel to motel with Logan. So maybe they were still camping, but maybe they were on a sales trip. After the police left, intending to investigate this brother, Brian, Melody asked Katie what was going on. She had told Melody the DHS story, and now she's telling the police that her brother had Logan. Katie said she lied to the police but didn't really offer an explanation for why. Katie then called an ex-boyfriend named Kevin. She was still friends with him, but they hadn't spoken in a while. Katie told him that her brother took Logan camping, but she hadn't heard from him. All she knew was that he was camping in Pennsylvania or Vermont, which Kevin pointed out was a very large area. Katie said the sheriff's department was actively looking for Logan, and it would just be a big help if Kevin would call the sheriff, pretend to be Brian, and say that he was camping with Logan. This didn't make any sense to Kevin. How would this help? If Logan was camping with Brian and was totally fine, the police would figure that out. If Brian was keeping Logan when he shouldn't, let the police figure that out. So Kevin refused to help. The next day, Katie tried calling Kevin again, but when he saw her number on the caller ID, he didn't answer. She did leave a message. It pretty much just said, call me, and he opted to ignore it. The next day, on July 8th, Katie called the sheriff to tell them that she had finally heard from Brian. She didn't talk to him directly, but he had left a message on her answering machine. The police went out to the house to hear the message. The message said, quote, This is for Katie, and this is for her brother. She has Logan. He's all right, and they'll be back in a couple of weeks. This message served to only confuse things more. She has Logan. Who's she? Shouldn't it be, I have Logan, if it was Brian? Or wouldn't Brian say who the she was? Was he saying he gave Logan to someone? Why not say who he gave Logan to? And why address her brother? Katie said this was definitely Brian's voice. All the weirdness of the message aside, it was for sure him. Logan would be back in a couple of weeks, just like the message said, and there was nothing to worry about. What Katie didn't know was that the police had already spoken to Brian. 
When they reached out to Mickey to tell him what Katie said during the welfare check, he gave them Brian's number. They had left Brian a message, and he called them back earlier that day to say he didn't have Logan, and he had no idea what Katie was talking about. He hadn't even been in Oklahoma in two or three years. Katie told the police Brian only said that because that's what she told him to say. She told him she didn't want her adoptive parents and brother to know where Logan was. So if anyone asked about Logan, don't disclose his location. So the officers called her bluff. With Katie standing right there, an officer called Brian and got him on the phone. He handed the phone to Katie to talk to Brian and tell him to admit he had a Logan if, in fact, he did. Pretty much all they heard was Brian yelling at Katie. When they tried to get the phone back to talk to Brian again themselves, Katie pulled it away and tried not to hand it over. Katie was then taken to the police station for further questioning. She was given her Miranda warning because she was being interviewed as a suspect, but she was not actually under arrest. She was at the station voluntarily. They pretty much went over everything that has already been said, and Katie stuck with the story that Brian took Logan. Katie was told that she had two options in that case, and she had until the morning to choose. She either had to get Logan back from Brian and produce him alive and well, or she had to file a kidnapping report against her brother. If Brian really had him, those were the only two choices in front of her. If Katie failed to do either of these things, the investigators told her they would begin investigating this case as a homicide. While this questioning was going on, they were also at Melody's house searching. Because let's face it, they were already investigating this as a homicide. They didn't believe Brian had Logan at any point. One legal document said they did not search Katie's bedroom on this particular search, which leads me to believe this was a consent search and not a search warrant search. Basically, Melody gave them permission to search her home, but she could not give permission over a tenant's space, which is why Katie's bedroom was excluded. But they did search that basement. Down there, they found the old mattress. It didn't have any bedding on it, but it did have a pillow on the floor next to the mattress, on the pillow, and on the mattress itself. They saw what appeared to be cooled orange wax, like from a candle. There was also a white bucket down in the basement that had a clump of masking tape in it. The tape had some of that candle wax on it, but it also had a small blood stain and short, light blonde hair stuck in it. On finding the tape, the officers at the scene called the sheriff's office and told them about it. So Katie was confronted with it since Logan, too, had short, whitish blonde hair. Katie said that Logan and JD had been playing with the tape while they were in the basement during a tornado siren, and it had gotten stuck on them, and that's likely where it came from. Katie had an answer for everything, but remember Michael's mother, Evelyn? She noticed wax on Katie's shirt the day Logan was last heard from. Wax on her shirt, wax on the tape, the tape had blood and hair on it. What are the odds that this happened at different times? This sounds like, circumstantially, it is connecting Katie to tape that had blood and hair on it. They also determined that the tornado siren story was a lie. In the two weeks or so they lived at Melody's house before Logan went missing, they had never been down there. Plus, the tape wasn't kept down there. Melody said it was kept upstairs. In spite of these suspicions, they still didn't have enough to arrest Katie, but they did have enough to take JD into protective custody while the investigation continued. Before Katie went home that day, they reminded her to produce Logan or file a kidnapping report the next day. In the morning, when Katie did neither of those things, the sheriff's department declared Logan a missing child and had him listed with all of the usual agencies. They also searched Katie's car and searched Melody's house again. Inside Katie's trunk, they found some of that plastic that she had taken from Michael's property. They found rope, and they found drain cleaner. During the search of Melody's house, Melody realized that something was missing, a suitcase. 
It had been kept in the closet of the back bedroom. Katie was not home during the search, but when she got back later, she said to Melody, I suppose you want me to leave, and Melody said yes. So Katie packed up and left, moving into a motel. News of this missing six-year-old hit the headlines on July 10th, 2002, and the community in Woodward County sprung into action. This is an area where the largest city within the surrounding nine-county region had a population of 12,000 people. We are talking rural, rural Oklahoma. Yet, Hundreds of volunteers showed up with their own supplies, horses, and ATVs to search for Logan. They concentrated the searches in two areas. One was Woodward itself, where Logan was last seen. The other was Fort Supply, where Katie had been seen with a JD getting a shovel and plastic liner for these flower beds that never materialized. Katie did not participate in any of the searches. She never once called the sheriff to check on the progress of the case. As a suspect in the case, I understand that she did not want to open up communication with the police. But Katie did retain a lawyer who could have gotten progress reports for her on her behalf, but it doesn't look like she ever requested that he do that. While the media attention got the community to mobilize in searches, it also led to another crime being committed. When the forensic processing for Katie's car was complete, it was returned to her through her lawyer. The car was parked behind his office when one day it was set on fire. Katie was suspected in the arson at first, but her attorney rightfully pointed out that she had no motive at that point. If she wanted to get rid of evidence, she should have done it before the state crime lab went over the car with a fine-tooth comb. Three women later pleaded guilty to the arson. They believed Katie was guilty of causing Logan's disappearance, and they were exacting some type of revenge. The media coverage also brought out another witness, a man named Don Hackley. He contacted the police after he heard a news report on the radio about a missing boy named Logan, and he remembered a weird interaction he had a few days before. A woman he did not know approached him while he was at the gas station. The woman asked Don to call a phone number for her and leave a message saying that Logan was okay. He didn't know what it was about, but said, why not? And he made the call. The woman dialed the phone number for him. It turned out it was Don who left that message that Katie claimed was Brian. I think this is why the message was so confusing. Don didn't know Katie or what was going on or any of the stories she had told, so he didn't really have the details. He heard Katie, brother, Logan, and just sort of repeated some combination of those words into the phone. It was just some weird little encounter to Don until he heard that a little boy named Logan Tucker was missing and he realized he had been roped into something bigger than making a weird phone call. While this was another piece to the puzzle, Katie wasn't the sole focus of the investigation because other possibilities had to be ruled out. The FBI followed up with Robert Tucker, Logan's father. They looked into other people in Robert's family as well. This is not to say they thought that it was a non-custodial parent kidnapping, but they did have to rule out every avenue. Both Robert and his brother were interviewed extensively. At the time, they both lived in North Carolina, and neither had seen Logan since he was a baby. Robert provided a DNA sample, which was very important in this case. The authorities did not have Logan's DNA on file. But if they had Katie's DNA and Robert's DNA, they could test against that to figure out if the DNA found was the DNA of their offspring. And that is exactly what happened. The blood and hair from the tape in the basement came from a male child of Katie and Robert. And the only child they had together was Logan. As for the brother Brian, the other person they looked very closely at, he had receipts for days 
literally four days. As a traveling salesperson, he had motel, hotel, gas, food, and every other kind of receipt you could imagine. These were all business expenses. As a business owner, I can tell you, I save every receipt. Brian did the same. On June 23rd, the day Katie said DHS had taken Logan, Brian was in Maryland, and he could prove that. After that, he traveled to West Virginia, something else he could prove. He was also traveling with other people who could account for his whereabouts. So did Brian somehow slip away, drive a 32-hour round trip, pick up Logan, and somehow step right back into his sales trip without a single person seeing that he had a six-year-old boy with him? Brian never had Logan. DHS never had a Logan. Katie knew what she was doing with who she told what story to. These were not changing stories. They were cultivated tales designed for the person she was talking to. If the family asked who had a Logan, it was DHS. But if DHS or the authorities who could check with DHS asked, Logan was with family. For two weeks, she managed to keep this going and would have probably kept it going forever if her parents didn't decide to pursue kinship placement and if her brother didn't call in a welfare check. Every investigative path led them to Katie, but they still needed more evidence to make a case. In late July 2002, they moved an undercover officer into the apartment across the hall from where Katie had recently moved into. His name was Rick Stevens. Rick befriended Katie, and over the course of a month or so, she opened up to him. But she didn't say anything terribly incriminating. She repeated the camping with Brian lie as for where Logan was. She admitted she had a motive for killing Logan because of how difficult he made her life. She expressed concerns her attorney didn't believe her. She even thought he was secretly recording her. And she also worried out loud that she would be arrested and considered leaving the country. But what she didn't do was give any clue where Logan was, confess to anything, or say what happened to him. But if you remember what Michael's mother saw when Katie picked up the shovels and the plastic pieces, she was not alone. J.D. was with her. And with J.D. in foster care, the investigators interviewed him multiple times in July and August. J.D. was only four years old, so this was going to be shaky no matter how they approached it. In the first interview, when they asked if he knew where Logan was, J.D. said he was with Mom's brother, but he didn't know the name of Mom's brother, and he did not see him. He said Logan was sick, and the uncle picked him up from the doctor. He also said Logan wasn't going to come back because Logan was bad. During the second interview, J.D. said that he and Katie went digging for flowers, and Logan was not with them. J.D. was asked what Katie did when she went to dig, and he said he didn't want to say because it was hurting his heart. He ended up showing investigators an area where Katie had gone through a fence to a grassy area. J.D. then just got too upset to continue. So authorities returned later to that area to search, and in spite of finding a dig mark that looked like it was made by a shovel, they did not find Logan. In August, J.D. had a third interview. Now, these interviews that they were doing with him were relatively short, so they would only ask a little at a time. Again, he's four years old, and he had just been removed from his mother's custody. His brother was gone. They did their best to approach this as sensitively as they could. This time, they asked J.D. about why Katie needed a shovel and plastic, and J.D. said it was so she could bury Logan. But J.D. didn't see her bury Logan, but he did say Katie had put tape on Logan's eyes and mouth to stop him from crying. It wasn't clear if J.D., again, a four-year-old, meant Katie put the tape on Logan the same day she had the shovel, if it had happened the day before. So in another interview, they brought J.D. back to Melody's house. He said that Logan was in the back room and Katie brought him into the living room and put him in the blue chair. Logan was sick and wasn't talking. J.D. then went to the desk and said that's where Katie got the tape, and it's been confirmed by Melody that the tape was kept up there. J.D. opened the drawer and commented that the tape wasn't there anymore. 
J.D. said Katie then carried Logan to the car, and Logan was very sick. He wasn't moving or crying. Katie drove them around, and then she stopped at an old farmhouse and left Logan there. Being at Melody's house and talking about the last time he saw Logan was very upsetting to J.D. He cried multiple times during the walkthrough, and they really had to handle this delicately. Though elements of J.D.'s story would change a little bit here and there, that is well within what is expected with a four-year-old. But the tape in the basement did line up with what J.D. said, including where the tape was usually kept. It sounds like J.D. may have been discussing elements of what happened, but elements that spanned multiple days. My conjecture here is that... Logan was possibly left by the farmhouse the first day. And then the second day, when Katie went to go get the shovel, he was moved and buried. I personally do not think he was in Melody's house for long after Melody left for work that first morning. During those first two months of Logan being missing, Katie felt the heat and the scorn of the community. So in September 2002, she moved three and a half hours away to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. She immediately stopped visits with J.D., and he was eventually placed in his father's home in a nearby state. And the investigation continued, but it also slowed. There was evidence, but not enough. They continued interviewing people as they built a circumstantial case, and they continued to search for Logan's body in the hopes they could prove what happened to him. They wanted to prove first that Logan was, in fact, dead, and two, it was at Katie's hands. Nearly three years after Logan's disappearance in April 2005, Katie entered a common law marriage with a man named Jason Pollard. This would be her fifth husband. Even with this new husband, new job, new city, new church, new community, Katie's storytelling continued. One time, she and Jason were at a friend's house when the friend's baby started crying. Katie said how she remembered those days the way us old lady moms tend to do. And Laura, the friend, didn't know Katie had children, so she asked about them. Katie told her she had two sons, one who would have been nine and the other who was six. Laura heard the would-have-been-nine and sympathetically asked what had happened. Katie told her that he had been killed by a drunk driver. In the aftermath, Katie couldn't get her life back together, so she relinquished rights to her other son so he could go live with his father. And literally none of that had happened. This was yet another story, and really, what was the purpose of it? If I had to guess, it was sympathy and attention. She said what would endear her to the person she was talking to. What else was she going to say? That her son disappeared and she was the prime suspect and had been for years and lived her life looking over her shoulder? I mean, I don't know if she was looking over her shoulder. You have to wonder... If people who know they're being investigated for a crime are always waiting for that knock on the door, do they ever let their guard down and feel confident in moving on and feeling like they're never going to get caught? I mean, I encouraged Sharon Kinney to get in touch a couple weeks ago, and so far she hasn't. But if she ever does, I will definitely ask her. Who knows if Katie ever dropped her guard? But on Thursday, February 23rd, 2006, the sheriff showed up at 31-year-old Katie's home while her husband was at work. He arrested her for the murder of Logan Tucker three and a half years after Logan was last seen. There had been no investigative bombshells, nothing that broke the case wide open. They just looked at the case and decided they had enough to go to trial. After Katie's arrest, a sanitation worker named Mark Bell came forward saying he remembered picking up a blue suitcase across the street from Melody's home. It wasn't where Melody normally left her trash, but he picked it up anyway. Mark said it weighed more than he expected. He would estimate between 40 and 60 pounds. He said it was wrapped in clear plastic, tied with a rope, and smelled like a dead animal. 
He considered opening the suitcase up to see what it was, but he didn't have a knife on him to cut through the plastic and rope. He looked up and saw that a woman was watching him as he was picking up the trash, so he just grabbed the suitcase and threw it in the truck. The suitcase Melody said was missing from her house was blue, and this lined up with what Mark said. I could not personally find evidence at the time of if this suitcase detail was in the media or not. With this information, the landfill was searched for months, but nothing was found. Not only was this nearly four years down the road, but this landfill was used for all of the counties in the area. It was a lot to sift through, and the odds of finding Logan's remains were slim, but it was worth a try anyway. As for how this story of the heavy suitcase fits in with the rest of the theories of the crime, like J.D.'s story about his mother burying Logan, honestly, it's just speculation. But even without all the details filled in, and most notably without Logan's body, the case moved forward against Katie for murder in the first degree, accusing her of using unreasonable force against Logan, resulting in his death. Before the trial began, Katie's attorney, David Christian, was dismissed from the case. The state alleged they had an inappropriate relationship. In those recorded conversations with the undercover officer, Katie said that she had made out with her attorney in a motel room, which he admittedly paid for after Melody kicked Katie out. He also signed the lease agreement so Katie could get an apartment, listing himself as a co-tenant with her. The state also had someone willing to testify that two years after Logan's disappearance in the summer of 2004, she found a backpack in David Christian's garage that had Logan's name on it. David stipulated to the court that he agreed that would be that person's testimony, that event had happened, but he would not stipulate to knowing who the backpack belonged to. It's not very common for the court to step in and kick someone's attorney off a case, but that is what they did here. The attorney who had been advising Katie from the beginning and knew the case as well as anyone else was dismissed, and Katie had to start over preparing her case with a new attorney. Due to these delays, the trial did not begin until August 2007. In Oklahoma, if the victim is under the age of 18, the state does not need to prove premeditation, which Oklahoma law calls malicious aforethought, to prove murder in the first degree. If the death of a child results from willful or malicious injury or the use of unreasonable force, it is first-degree murder even without intent to kill or premeditation. Death through child abuse is first-degree murder in Oklahoma. The state just had to prove that Katie did cause Logan's death, even if her intent was just to injure him. Saying the word just in regards to child abuse is disgusting and gross, but relative to murdering Logan on purpose, the word fits. One of the star witnesses for the state was J.D., who was nine years old at this point. He told the story about Logan not talking or moving and Katie taking Logan towards the woods near an old house. He said that was the last time he saw his brother. The defense countered J.D.'s testimony with expert evidence about the reliability of interviewing children and how easy it is to manipulate their memories, even accidentally. But the expert testified in general terms only. He did not review the interview tapes of J.D., so he didn't say J.D. was coerced. He couldn't make a judgment on that, which would have made his testimony much more impactful if he did. The state presented all of the evidence and witnesses who said Katie resented Logan, that she had a history of abusing him, and that she did not want him. The motorcycle rally she went to the weekend after Logan went missing included a topless contest that Katie had entered. The state used the pictures from that to present the free life Katie was enjoying while her son was missing. Katie argued that Logan wasn't missing. According to her, he was with his uncle, and she believed he was coming home. So this was just a young mom on a break, not a remorseless killer. Katie's defense was 
Okay, sure, she lied about various things, including where Logan was, but that wasn't proof of murder. Her attorney called the state's case a patchwork of anecdotes. And he's not wrong. Technically speaking, lying about where your son is isn't proof you killed him, but it is evidence of a cover-up. And what exactly was Katie covering up? That wasn't answered. The defense did not offer an alternative explanation for what happened to Logan or why Katie lied about it. That's not their responsibility. The burden of proof is on the state, but it sure goes a long way towards reasonable doubt to give a reasonable explanation. The defense did have witnesses who claimed to see Logan after he disappeared to plant that doubt about his death and the state's theory of the crime. The sightings were as late as July 14th, the summer he went missing. This was after the police had become involved in looking for him and after all of Katie's lies. None of the witnesses, however, who supposedly saw Logan knew him prior to his disappearance. They were testifying in regards to pictures they saw of Logan in the media. And while I don't think they were lying, I do think they just saw a little boy who looked like Logan. At the end of the trial, the jury was instructed that they had to find three things beyond a reasonable doubt to find Katie guilty. First, there was the death of a child under the age of 18. Second, that the death had resulted from willful or malicious use of unreasonable force. And third, the death was caused by Katie Rutan, who was going by Katie Pollard at the time of trial. They had three things on their checklist, and it took them less than three hours to find Katie guilty on August 31st, 2007. Though Katie had no previous criminal history, the judge opted to give her the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Katie appealed, and one of the things she challenged was the sufficiency of the evidence against her, saying that they didn't even prove Logan's cause of death, so how could a jury find that it was due to willful or malicious use of unreasonable force? The state countered that Katie shouldn't get bonus points for hiding a body well. And in the appeals process, the burden has shifted to the defendant. So everything is viewed in the light most favorable to the state. So on this point, she didn't get anywhere. Another point in the appeal was character assassination that happened during the trial. Things like the topless photo from the motorcycle rally. And there was also testimony about how quickly... Katie would begin sexual relationships with men after meeting them. Katie said that it unfairly prejudiced her in the eyes of the jury, and this is definitely something we've seen in other cases. But in this case, the appellate court ruled that these items, which would be irrelevant in many cases, were actually relevant here. The state's theory of the crime included Katie's motive being that she wanted to be free from her children to live her best life. And that's exactly what she did after Logan disappeared and even more so after J.D. was taken from her custody. Katie's appeal was denied. In 2018, 11 years after her conviction, Katie did a jailhouse interview with the Oklahoman. The way she talked about her sons was a lot kinder than she reportedly ever treated them. Of JD, she said he was gentle and loving and would hang back and watch. Logan was the more active and energetic one, but he was also very sweet and loving. She said that the brothers loved each other and played together all the time. Though Katie tried to reminisce and sound like a caring mother here, the way she remembered her two boys gives us a glimpse of why Logan was the target of abuse, whereas J.D. was not, or not to the same extent. The quiet, gentle child was easier on her. The energetic, inquisitive Logan was not. He was the one who required more of her time and attention, all within the normal realms of parenting, but was still more than Katie wanted to give, and she resented him for it. That part of the interview with the Oklahoman was just a glimpse into Katie, but something we probably could have guessed ourselves. The most shocking part of this interview was Katie's explanation for what happened to Logan. It was a story we've already heard. Katie's brother Brian took Logan and never returned him. 
Katie believes Logan was adopted out, not remembering his birth family. He's out there somewhere living under an assumed name. And if that is the case, the key to cracking this lies with Brian. I personally find it ridiculous that with 11 years in prison thinking about it, Katie couldn't come up with anything other than this story that has already been proven impossible. The very nature of Brian's job gave him an hour-by-hour alibi. This lead was followed up on early and thoroughly vetted. It isn't that they just didn't find proof Brian took Logan. They found proof there's no way he could have. I don't know if there's anyone out there who believes Katie. I know JD doesn't. Now an adult, he has refused to have contact with Katie until she tells the truth about what happened to his brother and allows them to bring Logan home to be properly buried. While this is a closed case in the sense a conviction has occurred, searches for Logan Tucker continued even after the trial. They will still occur as new tips come in. So if you have any information on the whereabouts of Logan Tucker, call the Woodward County Sheriff's Office at 580-256-3264. I will leave this number in the description. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 